Tuesday, January 9th. Welcome on into Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Min in for Avi Wolfman Aaron. A stormy show today. Yeah, You've probably sure. <laughs> received the alerts on your phone. New Jersey State climatologist David Robinson will join us soon to talk about what the next 24 hours have in store for us. I'm Interesting. <laughs> I know I'm a little nervous myself. Also on the show today, the debate over cursive writing in schools. I did not know this, but the art of cursive is literally disappearing from classrooms across the U.S. And states like California have mandated that it stay in the curriculum. Should we do the same in our region? We'll hear from one Pennsylvania lawmaker who says yes. Plus, we'll hear from a writing expert. And we want you to weigh in. Did you learn cursive in school? What should we do? You can call 888-477-9499 or you can email studio2 at whyy.org. And surely my cursive used to be decent. <laughs> These days, I don't know. <laughs> my I just my handwriting has declined significantly yes, in yes. general so I don't even want to get to the cursive part that's also terrible mm-hmm. well we are going to talk about radon later this hour and how you can protect your home from this dangerous gas but first some stories today cherry yes yeah, surely my timeline was buzzing over <laughs> the past few days on this story It was a big brouhaha over the William Penn statute at the Welcome Park. You know, the one at 2nd and Sansom in Philadelphia's Old City. Well, on Friday, the National Park Service said it would remove the statue of William Penn, as well as the Slate Roof House, as part of a rehab project for the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. NPA said that it would redesign it and would be more inclusive and highlight Native American history. Well, people got immediately upset, hence the buzz on social media. Then last night, NPS abruptly reversed its stance, surely saying their decision had been premature and William Penn would be staying. Yeah. And what what happened? I mean, I have whiplash because from the announcement Mm -hmm. where it was going to be removed and then you wake up the next day and they're like, oh, by the way, we're not doing it. (laughs) It was kind of crazy. And and the charge to keep it had first been led by Republicans and then high profile Democrat, our governor, Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania's own Josh Shapiro um, tweeted Monday that his team had contacted the Biden administration to correct that decision. And then, of course, you know, we got the that it would be staying. And um, but to me, it was like, you know, don't mess with William Penn. People right. love William Penn, right. clearly. And I, I, we were talking off air just yeah. maybe we can add to Welcome Park and to the William Penn statue. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. It's It'll, still going to be rehabbed. Yeah, because we have all eyes will be on Pennsylvania for mm-hmm. the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. So they're going to be making renovations and they'll make the process more public facing mm-hmm. in the future. Yeah, definitely some drama there mm-hmm. in the National Park Service. Well, on to another story. There's been an outbreak of measles in our region. There yeah. are eight confirmed cases mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And the locations for potential exposure include Nemours Hospital in Delaware, um, as well as Holy Redeemer Pediatric Urgent Care Meadowbrook and Jefferson Abington Emergency Department in Montgomery County. 
city officials are doing all the mm-hmm. contact tracing right now, which we know about all too well because yeah. of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So they're trying to reach out and notify folks who may have been exposed to measles. Um, the city is also offering walk-in vaccination sites for measles, mumps, and rubella vaccination. The good thing is, you know, if you have had that MMR vaccine, mm-hmm. which I think the statistic is, according to health officials, um, like 93%. Yeah, you're in good shape basically for your lifetime. Mm-hmm. If these are the folks who got the measles were unvaccinated individuals. So yeah, um, the, the, the vaccine is 97% effective at preventing measles. So you can get them at most pharmacies, your doctor's offices or clinics and all of yeah. that. The good news is if, if you're not vaccinated and you did get the measles, you know, you're likely to survive. But very young children under the age of five could have some major complications. Mm-hmm. And older folks, too. Yeah, and older folks, too. So, you know, I'm, I'm vaccinated. A lot of people vaccinated. So hopefully folks will continue that. Um, moving on over to uh, New Jersey uh, for a story. Um, in the Pen- oh, no, no, we're staying in Pennsylvania. My apologies. Um, the Pennsylvania Senate race, surely, is heating up already. Um, former Bridgewater Associate CEO David McCormick made a big fundraising haul at the end of last year, and it looks likely that he will be the Republican frontrunner that will be facing Senator Bob Casey, who is a three-term incumbent mm-hmm. this fall. McCormick raised $5.4 million in the third quarter with an additional $1 million contribution from himself. So that kind of put him over that major line. Um And you probably remember him because he lost the 2022 um, primary to Trump-endorsed Mehmet Oz Mm -hmm. by just 1,000 votes. And Casey is also raising money. He raised about $3.2 million in the third quarter. The money that goes into these campaigns is astronomical. Um, And I think there's going to be... to expect a lot of outsider money coming in from super PACs for these candidates. So... That's just like the nature of these elections nowadays. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's big. And if you look over to New Jersey, I had mentioned New Jersey before, they have the Bob Menendez seat mm-hmm. that has major battles um, going on. So we're going to, the Senate races are going to be hot in our region. And so that is one of the many things we'll be watching in 2024. Well, something else we're going to be watching and this is like right up my alley in the food world. Uh, Michael Klein at the Inquirer, he raised this interesting question about why has the Michelin Guide not come to rate Philadelphia And I didn't even know who the Michelin Guide was. So you break it down. Break it down for us, Okay, Shirley. so the Michelin Guide, it was a guide that originated, it was introduced in 1926. Now, this is the tire company, Michelin, mm-hmm. okay? It, it was kind of introduced to show people around, like all the sites, where to go, blah, blah, blah. Well, now they cover restaurants in 25 countries, predominantly Europe and Asia. The first U.S. edition was introduced in 2006 with a focus on New York City. And since then, it's been brought to San Francisco, D.C., Chicago. Okay, Philly's not on this list, and why not? So Mm. we have a green guide for Michelin, but that's like the not the coveted guide. That's not the one that focuses on all of the restaurants. And we wonder why Philly is being excluded because Philly has multiple James Beard winners. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have Philly been, is the food town. Yes, we have been We're routinely high. named Philadelphia restaurants on all the best lists, according to a bunch of national food mm-hmm. journals. So why aren't we there? I'm a little heated about this. I'm going to 
be a hater, man, because, you know, <laughs> Michelin Guide, what's up? Like, we should be there. On the, and, you know, Philadelphia is like Philly over everybody. It's like Philadelphia against the world. Right. So this just kind of sort of adds to that. A hundred percent. That little chip that Philadelphians have on their shoulder. Now, it has been reported that tourism boards have paid Michelin. Oh. And so that may be mm. a thing. But the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau says it's been touched with Michelin about you know, gauging some interest in Philadelphia, getting this red guide, which is the guide that's focused on the restaurants, but didn't know how much it would cost to get that buy-in. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they're going to try to make it happen. We'll see. I and, don't know. and by the way, um, the the Pennsylvania, the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau said you can email yes. the Michelin Guide. Let me give you their email. Yes, Philly. do it. <laughs> do it, Cherry. Michelin.guides at Michelin.com. Feel free to advocate on behalf of your city. And I'll leave, <laughs> I'll leave it there. We need the Michelin Red Guide. <laughs> yes. And so we're going to move on to something serious for tonight. Last weekend, we had some snowflakes and rain. And here in Philly, it turned out to be more slushy than anything else. But those of you in the Lehigh Valley definitely saw some snow cover. Well, the next winter storm, friends, is ahead of us. Beginning this afternoon, we'll be under a flood watch and wind advisory in this area. And it's very serious this time. Joining us now with what to expect is David Robinson. He is the New Jersey State Climatologist and a professor at Rutgers. Dave, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks very much. Dave Shirley here. What are we going to see weather-wise? I mean, it's already raining here in Philadelphia, but what are we going to see? We are going, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to see the rain intensify as we go through the afternoon and into the evening. And the expected totals are going to be somewhere in the one to three inch range. Uh, putting that in perspective, the average rainfall for January is somewhere between three to four inches. So it's a lot of rain. Now, along with the rain, we won't have any freezing conditions. So that's the good news this time around, as opposed to last weekend when we were at that rain snow line. But the winds are going to pick up. And this is a very powerful storm. And it's going to bring some strong winds, the strongest to the coast, where gusts may hit 60 miles an hour. Jeez. But even inland and, and in the Philly metropolitan area, you could have wind gusts exceeding 40 miles an hour. Wow. And and that's could bring down trees. The ground is soaked. We're saturated. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, the trees are more susceptible to falling. And with that, power lines can mm -hmm. come down and such. And then adding insult to injury, the winds are coming in from the southeast. And that's going to push water up Delaware Bay and into the lower reaches of the Delaware tidal areas of the Delaware River. Uh, and that's going to bring levels up one, two feet above the normal dry land in some areas, flooding some nearby roadways. Um, it's going to deter rainfall from coming downstream and getting into the river, thus perhaps backing yeah. up streams there. It's going to be a mess. And, and so how should we prepare? Because I'm thinking about this. It gets darker early now. You know, people, um, you know, a lot of folks in the office on a Tuesday. So how should we prepare and what should we be thinking about as we head home this evening? Great point. Hunker down. That's what I would say. Stay off the roads if you can. Get home early. Get home as early as you can. Um, stay inside. Be prepared for a potential power outage. Make sure the flashlights are ready. 
and and such. And if the winds get real strong, um, stay away from windows and and, and such. Um, and and then just listen to what the authorities have to say. Mm -hmm. uh, Governor Murphy has already issued a state of emergency in New Jersey, which gives him certain um, ability to to restrict for different restrictions. I know here at Rutgers, they're letting people um, go home earlier and suggesting at-home work perhaps tomorrow when there could be flooded roads. Uh, my local community has canceled all evening events. Yeah. So the idea is hunker down, stay mm -hmm. inside, be safe and by all means. But goodness gracious, don't drive on a flooded oh, road. Might be an unpopular opinion. I wish it was snow. I, I wish know, it was snow. But I know. Dave, why so much rain lately? It just seems like mm -hmm. we had one good day this week, you know, it, full of weeks of rain and overcast skies. What's going on here? See, it's, you know, it's 40 days and 40 nights. In fact, <sighs> I was just looking at that. We've had twice the normal precipitation since the beginning of December. It's just been a series of storms. Now, they've either come up the coast or inland to the west of us. Uh, there's some suggestion it's related to the El Nino pattern that's active in the Pacific, um, which is putting more energy into the subtropical jet stream and combining with the polar jet stream. Um, we're really having some impactful storms along the East Coast and, and this week uh, out into the central part of the country as well. And, and this summer, I mean, I, I want to talk about the link between this type of weather and climate change, because this summer we saw these droughts followed by, you know, torrential rains and, and flooding. And it seems to be following a similar pattern this winter. Is there a link? That's a great observation, because I was at a drought meeting in New Jersey at the end of November. And then look what's happened since that time. And we saw that several times in 2023. I, yeah, I, with climate change, we are warming. Uh, we just went through the third warmest year with records yeah. going back to 1895. And here I'm talking about southeastern Pennsylvania, northern Delaware, southern New Jersey, and, and beyond. Today, it was announced that globally, and we knew this was coming, 2023 was the warmest year on record. And with that, think about it, there's more energy in the atmosphere with the warmth. The oceans are warmer. There's more energy, more evaporation. Um, the atmosphere can potentially hold more moisture. And if you have a mechanism to tr a trigger to get that out of the atmosphere, mm. your heavy rains become heavier. Uh, I like to say when it rains, it pours. But if we have an absence of that trigger, we have the warmer conditions that can dry things out faster. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a it's a it's a lose lose situation in many respects when it comes to too much rain or too little rain. We are in a snow drought, Dave, for Philadelphia, and that continues. I know that we did have this dusting over the weekend, which I don't think actually counts <laughs> um, oh, nope. officially mm -mm. against nope. the uh, the snow drought. So how many days since our last official snowfall do you track? It's been, I've got it. Uh, uh -oh. 709 days wow. <clears throat> since Philadelphia has had a calendar day with an inch or more snowfall. And that day, that memorable day, was the 29th of January in 2022, 
when 5.8 inches of snow fell, but we've not had a day since then. And that's a record. Wow. That's a record for Philadelphia. The previous record was 661 days oh that gosh. ended back in a very low snow period ending in uh, the winter of 1973. Wow. And so we are, we are in winter for real for real now so what is your prediction what is it going to look like will will we get some real snow stay tuned <laughs> I, I think we will those are we going to get a snow day because the kids are probably like I mean, are we going to get a snow day at this point i'm a little worried i didn't buy snow boots or snow pants this year because mm -hmm. we haven't had any for the past you know 700 days as you mentioned so uh, if we do get snow, then I'm going to be in trouble. But <laughs> Well, heck, I want to get my cross-country skis out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, next week it's going to get colder, and it's indicative of a colder pattern that should set in for the latter portion of January, maybe even to February. These El Nino winters yeah. here in the mid-Atlantic um, climatologically tend to start off warm. Well, but we'll, then you get mid to late winter and you can get cold. Yeah. And, and we'll have to leave it there, Dave. We got to okay. leave there. David Robinson is New Jersey State climatologist. He's also a professor at Rutgers. We're talking about cursive writing and the debate over keeping it in schools. Coming up next, stick with us. This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Min. Cursive is disappearing mm. from classrooms around the country as we become increasingly paperless in the digital age. In 2024, students need computer literacy and keyboard skills to be successful. But cursive with its curls, flourishes, and connectedness is not going down without a fight. Shirley, I learned cursive in school, and my grandmother had beautiful penmanship. Did you learn cursive? I learned cursive. Still don't understand the Q or the Z, why mm -hmm. they are the way they are, but I did also learn it, and I can still write it, but yeah. I don't really write in cursive. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, but lawmakers in California, they have mandated cursive writing up to sixth grade, and here in Pennsylvania, there is a lawmaker um, that has a proposal to keep cursive in schools here as well. This is Representative Joe Adams, who spoke to our producer yesterday. Take a listen. Certainly not a partisan uh, scenario that, that anybody is, is pushing. It just makes great sense for everybody uh, to be able to sign documents, to read documents, and to uh, understand our history, as well as all of the science pointing positively toward it. Well, we'll dig into some of Representative Adams' arguments later, but first we want to welcome our guest, Steve Graham, to the program. He is a professor at Arizona State University who studies how writing develops and how to teach it. Steve Graham, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on. And we also want to know if you have learned cursive, if you think it should be mandated, or if it's antiquated. Call 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. And so, Steve, I want to talk about this big debate over whether kids should learn how to write in cursive. How do we get to this place where the how-to of cursive writing is literally disappearing from the classroom? How do we get here? Well, I think in the state of Pennsylvania or California and 46 other states, when Common Core state standards um, became something that uh, those states signed on to, uh, what happened was handwriting was only mentioned as a goal in kindergarten and first grade. And historically in the U.S., 
we've taught manuscript writing in kindergarten and first grade and sometimes in second grade. Manuscript writing looks like typed writing, if you're not familiar with it. We typically taught cursive in second grade, third grade, and sometimes beyond that point. And what happened is that schools and parents and other people interpreted that mean that uh, cursive was no longer necessary or needed. And so that's how we've gotten to this point. Well, is it worth it to teach schools in curse, teach cursive in schools in this digital age? Like, is there science pointing to benefits of learning cursive? There are not um, benefits of learning cursive over learning manuscript in terms of scientific evidence. I think a way of thinking about this is that when you take a look at writing in schools, a good bit is still done by hand with paper, pencil, and pen. And as long as that's the case, students need at least one form of handwriting that they can do legibly and fluently. On the other hand, you know, basically handwriting in general um, is a skill that's used less and less often, both in school and outside of school. But cursive specifically doesn't really give you a great advantage over manuscript or, you know, using the keyboard. And so more than a dozen and a half states have tried to resurrect cursive, mandating that it be taught in the classroom. And that, of course, is happening right here in Pennsylvania. Uh, Representative Joe Adams, he's a Republican serving Wayne and Pike counties. We introduced him earlier. He's co-sponsor of a bill in Pennsylvania to require that it be taught in school. And he makes multiple arguments in favor of cursive writing, including history. All of the documents of our country, Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, are all written in cursive. So if you can't uh, understand cursive, you can't read those documents. You know, we can't avoid our own history. There are digitized images of a lot of things that don't give you the same feel and flavor that the, that the real thing does. He also argues that we use cursive in our signature. You can't open a bank account, you can't get a credit card, you can't do a loan, you can't open a business, you can't record a deed without your signature. Um, You know, we live in a world of AI and signatures are like a a thumbprint. And um, Steve, I want you to respond to those. I mean, there we do have this historical connection um, to cursive. We also need it for our signatures. Your reaction and as to those arguments of keeping cursive um, in schools. You know, first, let me say, I'm not against keep, keeping cursive in school. Okay. We need to teach either manuscript cursive or italics mm-hmm. or one of, the, one of the forms of handwriting. However, I have to say, I think the argument's a little superfluous. Mm-hmm. And by that, if you think about the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, the assumption that's being made here is that if you can't write in cursive, you can't read cursive. They're basically the same letters. You know, they're connected between manuscript and and cursive, um, and there may be more swirls, but you can still read cursive print. Now, it may take a maybe a little harder with something like the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, because way back then people used a lot of swirls and very fancy writing, but it doesn't keep you from reading it. I think the other point, important point here is that how often do you actually read these documents? Uh, in the original form. Often what you're looking at is it in a printed form that you get online digitally. So I'm not certain that that argument is enough to carry the day to say we need to be providing instructional time for this from kindergarten to sixth grade. 
In terms of signatures, we can teach kids to write their signature in cursive quite easily uh, without having to teach the whole alphabet and spending six years of, of work on this. Steve, when you say manuscript, are we just talking print, like printing, print handwriting? Yeah, so, yeah, so that's a good question. When we say manuscript, we're really talking about print, you know, kind of what, what uh, we think of in terms of what a typewriter gives us or a keyboard gives us. Cursive handwriting is having the connection between those letters, you know, so either at the front of the letter, like with an A, that may connect to a letter that comes before it or after the letter connecting, say, like to the letter D when you have a word like add. Mm -hmm. I will say my handwriting has deteriorated mm -hmm. significantly. Like I have a hard time writing a full sentence without it then turning into a scribble at the end. And my kids are in fifth and third grade and both of their penmanship's terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel horrible saying this, their mom. But I almost don't think their teachers have, they haven't had enough time to like focus on handwriting or they don't have time to devote to handwriting. Do you see that as kind of an issue across the board? I do see it as an issue and it's a broader issue with writing in general. And so one of the things that happens is that we have a very crowded curriculum with a lot of things that we wanna teach. And I think the issue in terms of cursive handwriting is do we need to teach both manuscript and cursive uh, as well as keyboarding skills? Now, clearly we need to teach one form of handwriting. It can be either one of those two. They don't really differ that much in terms of legibility or how quickly you can produce those, um, whether you learn how to do manuscript or cursive. So one of those two need to be taught and students need to learn to type. Yeah. Um, and we need to devote the time to that. I, I don't think there's any question about it. And if you are just tuning in, we're talking about cursive writing. It is literally disappearing from many schools across our country. We're speaking with Steve Graham, professor at Arizona State University, who studies how writing develops and how to teach it. And we want to hear from you. Did you learn cursive? Do you think it should be mandated or is it antiquated? You can call us. Our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. I want to read a couple of comments and emails that we've received. Uh, email from Sammy who says, why is this even a debate? Who uses cursive writing today? We use electronic signing on documents. No one uses it. What time? Uh, what time that could be time. used? That time, excuse me. <laughs> that time could be used to teach other things. No one mandates learning hieroglyphics, Aww. and that is. I mean, they're putting <laughs> hieroglyphics to cursive. But um, you know, we also got an email from Jean who said recently I called my local bank because I had neglected to record the recipient of a particular check. No problem, assured the cheerful young man who answered and pulled out my account. Oh, he then said, "I won't be able to help you after all because." I don't read cursive. Ugh. So are there like some other advantages, you know, to to learning cursive besides just being able to read historical documents or sign something? It, it, does it help with brain development, for example? Um, there's no real evidence that it helps with brain development. And there's no real good reason to think that it would make a difference. Mm. You know, I've heard a lot of different claims about handwriting or, you know, manuscript or cursive in terms of helps you be more orderly, it helps you be more creative, but there's just not evidence that that's the case. And there's not really a lot of good reasons for believing that would be the case either. 
you know, if that's the case, you, you need to be able to point to some underlying change in brain activity that would make you say smarter, more creative, more organized, et cetera. That just doesn't exist. Steve, we have another comment. Kate says, fundamentally, it's proven that kids learn writing faster when they learn in cursive. Can you address this? Yeah, so that, you know, if you ask the man on the street, which is more legible, easier to read, they would typically say manuscript or print writing. Um, and typically, if you said which is faster or more automatic, they would say cursive writing. We conducted a study um, a number of years ago that took a look at, um, you know, allowed children to write as they normally would. And we looked at both legibility and speed for fourth grade to ninth grade. What we found was that there was very little difference in the legibility of students' handwriting when you compared manuscript versus cursive and very little difference between fluency. So um, one of the things that often is missed in terms of thinking about the data that exist on this is that typically they used to test kids, you know, say like in eighth grade and they'd been taught cursive and then been using cursive for all those years and it looked to be a, a good bit faster than manuscript in those cases, but you had a practice effect going on there. So we're not seeing much difference at this point in time. Uh, I will say one advantage to possibly teaching cursive is that we found that kids who learn both manuscript and cursive, they mix the scripts together mm -hmm. and they tended to be even a little bit more faster than either manuscript or cursive and a little bit more legible. But that's not really surprising because they're using the letter forms that they can form most easily and quickly, which that's paramount for kids as they get older. You have to be able to produce text quickly to get your ideas on papers, and to take notes in class. And I typically do that mix uh, myself. I've seen that uh, in a lot of writing that I read. Uh, we want to bring in a caller. Grace is from Philly and wants to talk about cursive and creativity. Grace, you're on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Hi, I'm so happy, happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for taking my call. Um, I personally love cursive. I've always written in my own form of cursive. Like, I have my own style. And I'm just so happy that I was taught it as a kid. And I... I just worry that, like, our civilization is going to start homogenizing us too much and making us all the same through, like, computer type, which doesn't change at all. It's the same for everybody across the board, no pun intended. Um, and I, I think I found a lot of my personality and artistry through cursive, and I, like, write people's wedding invitations for them, and I always, like, get applauded for my, like, cards that I write for people. And it's just a part of who I am, and I, I love the way I write. I love the way I can write in journals, and it's, I just... I think it's part of us as artists, and I think if children are not even taught that it exists, hmm. pretty soon that, that whole art is just going to disappear, through, like, and we'll just all be typing, and I think that's sad to think about. Yeah, thank you, uh, Grace, um, for that comment. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point, Steve. I mean, it is a part of our individual, individual like, art. Yeah, for sure. Brain, the parts of us, um, individual expression of ourselves. Um, you see a lot of things like that, like art sort of trickling out of schools. Is this one of the many things that we're going to chip away um, that teaches individual creative expression in schools? Well, I, I loved what your caller just had to say. <laughs> and, and I have no doubt that for her, that's the case. Um, I'm not suggesting that we need to get rid of cursive. So, you know, let me go back and say, we could be teaching cursive in kindergarten and first grade. It's very simple now in terms of compared to what it was back at, 
you know, in the 1700s or 1800s. Um, some countries like the Netherlands currently do that. So I'm not suggesting that it disappear. What I'm suggesting is that we have a very crowded curriculum and we have to make tough decisions about what to teach. Do we need two forms of handwriting? I would recommend probably not, mm -hmm. given the amount of time mm -hmm. that it would take. Um, on the other hand, you know, you can't deny what your caller just said. Yeah. It was really a beautiful statement. So thank you. Yeah, I really like that. It actually did make me kind of sad to think that you're losing that individuality. Mm -hmm. And it does get fun when you want to, you know, swoop the pen and make mm -hmm. that S very flourishy. Um, lots of emails in. Yes. Um, Terry, I can't read them very well. Do you yeah, I'll read one. Email from Kara says, uh, I think the idea of not teaching cursive in schools is absolutely crazy. I'm 34 years old and I use cursive and print together every day. Also, handwriting in general, I feel has connected me more to my thoughts than trying to just write something out right into a computer. Mm -hmm. For some reason, it almost gives me writer's block staring at a computer screen. Also, an email from Sabrina. The argument that historical documents can't be read if you don't learn cursive is completely bunk. All of these documents have been translated into type documents. Also, no bank or other institution has ever looked at someone's signature and said, this isn't cursive. It doesn't count. Mm -hmm. People feel some kind of way they about do. their cursive. <laughs> well, Steve, you know, like, I guess the Common Core State Standards, which essentially omitted cursive from the curriculum, I guess it was it omitted it in favor of things like computer skills and mm -hmm. typing just because they saw the writing on the wall. Are schools that have omitted cursive actually teaching typing or computer skills? I do also think typing is a critical skill to have, yeah, but yeah. is there a way to track that? Well, there is a way to track it, but quite honestly, we don't know. Hmm. Um, you know, you can survey teachers, you can randomly select teachers from across the U.S. and survey them about what they're doing and get a good sense of what's going on, but we don't have any kinds of surveys of that nature. So we're a little bit in the dark uh, in terms of this. There is controversy over when to introduce uh, typing as well. So for example, you know, little kids have little hands. Keyboards, mm -hmm. like the one I have in front of me right now, um, is really built for bigger hands. And so, you know, it's, there's some controversy about when we should start, but you're often seeing typing start in second grade at this point with seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds. Interesting. I want to read a couple more of these emails. One from Bill who says, try writing in cursive sometime and you'll find that it slows down your writing and makes it more thoughtful. Huh. Like, because we, we're like thumb, you know, yeah. we're, we're using our thumbs, texting quickly. Sometimes you say things without th thoughtful, being thoughtful. That's a good email from Bill. Um, also, um, email from Teresa who says as an occupational therapist who works in the schools and handwriting analyst I wish more cursive instruction would occur in schools I find that the children who have learning problems do better with cursive than with manuscript hmm. I have read multiple articles that say that writing and learning to write in cursive does help with some children with learning disabilities particularly with dyslexia um, are there instances where cursive is something um that could be incorporated or should be incorporated in learning. So, so this is an interesting thing that the reader brings up. There's been a longstanding um, view that learning to write in cursive is better for students with uh, learning disabilities or 
kids who have been identified with learning disabilities. That's actually my area of expertise. I started as a special education teacher and I have a particular interest in this. Um, so I have two comments on this. One is there's a lot of kind of exposition or talk around this, but when you look for data to support that, other than you know, kind of individual kids, which are a little bit more idiosyncratic, you cannot really find data that provides strong support for that position. Mm -hmm. However, there is some data to suggest that if you have difficulty writing with one form of script like print, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you take on a second form of print, that those same difficulties will occur there. And you know, given the history of how we teach handwriting, uh, print or manuscript first and then moving to cursive, that may be one reason why we see that popping up uh, at some times um, in terms of students uh, you know, doing better writing in cursive with kids who have learning disabilities because they initially had difficulties uh, in terms of print. Mm. So, you know, on the one hand, I'm kind of dismissing it. On the other hand, I'm kind of stepping back and saying, well, there may be something here. I do like the idea of cursive and writing and how it does slow your mm -hmm. writing down. And sometimes I have found that writing things down, I actually can process the information and retain yeah. the information better. So I almost wonder if that could be another argument for keeping cursive in schools in, in that it does help you kind of retain some of the stuff you're learning in the classroom. So that's that's really a good question on that. And I think there may be a generational divide here to some degree. So, um, you know, basically, I if I want to read something that's online, I usually print it out and read it that way, make notes on it, mm -hmm. et cetera. So I'm old school on that. And, uh, you know, I write, but I, I type with two fingers on each hand, so I'm not the fastest person in the world. So slowing down a little bit is useful to me. But on the other hand, when I look at my students, whether they're undergraduate students or graduate students, today, you know, they're online, they're digital. Uh, both in terms of reading and writing. And so part of this may be, you know, you're used to doing it in a particular way and that has advantages for you as well. And then there's, you know, individual differences. Some people do better um, when they work in a particular way. I will say in terms of thinking about the fluency issue, if your hand's not fast enough to keep up with your mind, there's a different kind of an effect. And that is you lose ideas you're trying to hold in your mind mm. as you're trying to write and they slip away. And sometimes you get them back and sometimes you don't. Now that doesn't affect most of us as adults because we're pretty quick. Yeah. But if you're six years old and you write 17 letters per minute, uh -huh. you can see where your hand's not fast yeah. enough to keep up with your mind. You're holding the idea in, in working memory and it slips away. Yeah, I want to bring in, our, I had a bunch of comments on Facebook as well. Monique says, our kids are missing so many things academically. Our focus on cursive is misguided. Brandon says, it's more important to type 85 words per minute in this day and age. Wouldn't mind them learning cursive, though. My question, and we only have about a minute and a half, is to you, is, is are we, you know, we wonder kids are going to be so digitized in this generation. Will they be able to operate in an analog world if we had a moment where all their technology was taken would they be able to function? And and I think that's the question when we talk about cursive and it, it, it may not necessarily be cursive that is the issue, but all the different things that allowed you to operate in an analog world. 
your comment on that. Yeah, so, you know, I've been asked a question about the death of handwriting for probably 30 years now. And I used to be kind of snarky and I'd say, well, can you tell me where it's buried and uh, where I can go visit it? <laughs> you know, I don't think we're at that point. You know, we're not even close to that point yet. Uh, handwriting has less, you know, of a market, if you'd like, of the digital world or the writing world. Um, but we're not to the point that it's going to disappear. You can carry a pen and paper anywhere, mm -hmm. right? And it's cheap. You don't have to have a computer to write something out. So I don't think we're in any grave danger at this point of handwriting or, you know, kind of operating in a different world is at risk for us. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, thank you so much. Steve Graham is a professor at Arizona State University who studies how writing develops and how to teach it. We appreciate you being on Studio 2 today. Thank you so much for asking me. Thanks, Steve. And coming up, Pennsylvania's high levels of the toxic gas radon, how to protect yourself. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back into Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Shirley Min, in for Avi wolfman Arendt. January is National Radon Awareness Month, and it's particularly important for folks in our region because Pennsylvania has some of the highest levels of radon gas in the country. Yeah, Shirley, I did not realize that 21,000 lung cancer deaths a year are linked to radon exposure. So we asked an expert to tell us more about this radioactive gas and why there's so much of it here and also what we should do to make our homes safe. Chris Ann Cronin is a public health professor at Muhlenberg College and joins us now. Welcome, Chris Ann, to Studio Two. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Chris Ann, first question. So radon is a radioactive gas, but like where is it coming from and what's its effect on our bodies? How How is it able to affect us so um, lethally? Well, it comes up from the ground from the uranium that's in rock and it seeps into um, indoor spaces like our homes or schools or um, you know daycare centers or places mm -hmm. of work. Um, and it can become trapped there where it can just increase and um, we inhale it. And so when we inhale it, it gets trapped in our lungs. Those radioactive particles get trapped in our lungs. And um, over time, um, that kind of exposure can lead to lung cancer. And so Pennsylvania, um, as a state, has some of the highest levels of radon in the country. And the Lehigh Valley, where you do a lot of work, is one of the hot spots. Why Pennsylvania and why the Lehigh Valley? Well, um, Pennsylvania in general, and especially the Lehigh Valley, we're geologically located on top of a huge rock formation called the Redding Prong. And um, because uranium is a you know, major element that makes up rock, that uranium um, radioactive decay radium actually causes um, this radon gas to be emitted from the ground. And when you put a house on top of that, um, you know, some of that gas can seep into the pores of the foundation or cracks in the foundation. 
um, and then accumulate in, in the home. But we're breathing, inhaling radon mm-hmm. in the open spaces and the yeah. outdoors, right? Yeah, that's right. But it's very at very, very low levels that are not at risk because it gets diluted right away in the air. Mm-hmm. The problem is when it gets inside a home and it becomes trapped there, um, you know, if you could see it, what you would see is just, uh, you know, an increase in the amount of gas that is accumulating. But because it's, um, you know, colorless, we can't see it. So and we can't smell it and we can't taste it. So we don't realize how much we're being exposed to. Yeah. And so how do we determine whether or not it should be it's it's in our homes and um, and how should we be, you know, monitoring it over time? Right. So at the very least, you should test your home um, and make sure that, um, you know, the levels are below what the EPA considers safe, which is four. Um, You can purchase a test kit at a do-it-yourself store like Home Depot or Lowe's. Um, They're very inexpensive. Or um, sometimes um, you can get them free from the American Lung Association, or um, the Department of Environmental Protection sometimes has um, gives have gives away free kits. Um, you test for 48 hours in your home. You have to make sure your home is closed up. So the best time to do this is during cold weather. Um, and then you send it off to a lab and within a week you'll get your test results. And if they come back high, then you need to decide um, what kind of, um, you know, mitigation you're going to put in your house. What's considered high? Like, what's the scale? So, I mean, it goes anywhere from zero um, to four, which is considered relatively safe. Anything over four is considered dangerous. Um, It would be the equivalent, for example, if your house was um, at four, it's the equivalent of smoking like eight cigarettes a day in your house. Um, and then from there, um, it just increases. So if it's, you know, five or six or seven or eight, you know, that's like adding an extra cigarette. Uh-huh. Um, we've had homes in the Lehigh Valley um, in the past few years who have, um, they've tested as high as, you know, 6,500. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, we've, we have the highest recorded indoor radon level in the country right here in Allentown. Wow. And I know you've been doing a lot of work to raise awareness. What are some of the mitigation strategies? You, you, If someone's called you up, they say, hey, we have these high levels. What can they do? Well, I mean, they need to contact um, a, midi- a certified mitigation company. There are many of them in Pennsylvania. It's one of the only laws that we have about radon in this state is that the mitigators must be licensed and certified to do the mitigation. It's a one-time cost. It usually runs anywhere between $800 to $1,100 to mitigate radon um, from your house. And basically what it is is a PVC pipe that they run from under the foundation of the house um, up through the roof and they put a little exhaust fan in that pipe and it it just exhausts all the radon gas from under the foundation up into up out through the roof so it doesn't ever accumulate in your home but i guess before you go to that step Mm -hmm. you probably should get a test kit because you can Mm -hmm. do those on your own 
Oh, definitely. You, yeah. And a mitigator would never put in, I mean, a certified mitigator would never just put in a mitigation system without actually repeating the test. Mm-hmm. Um, so the test that you do, um, you know, yourself will give you an idea of whether you need to, you know, take action and um, for mitigation. Is that a step that everyone should just take if you live in Pennsylvania, just get a, a test? Mm-hmm. That's the step one. Definitely step one, get a test. Because we don't have laws, some other states have laws. Um, like, for example, if um, you're selling your house, some states have laws where you have to, you must test and mitigate. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have that in Pennsylvania. The only law that we have is that if you are selling your house and you have tested your house for radon, you must disclose that at the point of sale. But you don't have to mitigate there there's no other um ish, uh, items that you need to check off um you know to do so um and and that's a problem for renters because mm-hmm. landlords are not required to test um and or mitigate or mitigate and that's really the population that i work with up here in allentown the renters well you can get a free test kit on chrisanne's website mm-hmm. radonlehighvalley.org um, that's yep. a great service um, and the tests are donated by American Lung Association. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Now, we do have a finite number of tests. Um, so when they run out, I'm not sure when I'll get more from them. Um, but they were kind enough to um, give me 300 tests. Yeah. And um, I've been sending them out every day to people. So, you know, we still have about 100 of them left. Yeah. Really would encourage Thank you. people if they're interested okay. to sign up. Thank you so much. That was Chris Ann Cronin, professor of public health at Muhlenberg College. She also runs RadonLehighValley.org, where you can register to get the test if they're still available. Well, that is it for Studio 2 today. For more of our show, follow WHYY on all of the social media platforms and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Besser, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's program from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Cherry Gray. And I'm Shirley Min. Thanks for joining us. It's been great working with you, Shirley. (laughs) Yeah. I'll be back tomorrow.